J-Cut, and this is the K-Cut, a movie podcast for movie fans. James here. I'm a content creator. I produce and release music under the alias Boutique Paul. I'm one half of the Prefer Not to Say podcast, and my expertise on the show is no budget film. I'm Rachel. I write for Films Fatale, and my favorite films are international cinema, silent movies, classic Hollywood, and especially lost film. My name is Andreas. I am the creator and one of the writers over at Films Fatale. Uh, my areas of expertise include art house, cinema, international cinema, a little bit of everything in between. Um, and I guess it's that time of the month, folks, where actually it kind of isn't. Uh, we took a few weeks off, which is, uh, you know, no no harm in that. Uh, but we are back with our, um, weirdly enough, July edition of the Cinematic Sport. But hey, better late than ever. And uh, if you don't know what any of this means at all. Uh, July is a month, uh, last month. Now it's August. Um, but okay. Real talk. Cinematic Smorgasbord, if you're brand new, is a series where we introduce films to one another that we've never seen before. As you heard in our intros, we each like something a little bit different, but there's obviously a lot of crossover appeal. And uh, furthermore, it's impossible to see every good film under the sun which kind of makes cinephilia a lot of fun. Um, So in the first half of this episode, we're going to go into picks that we gave each other. Um, So like I recommended some, like a film to somebody, somebody else recommended a film to me, et cetera. And we were part of findings. In the second portion of the episode, we each saw a film that none of us had seen before. And uh, if it's Tuesday, it must be Belgium, uh, which sounds also like a whole heap of nonsense. But rest assured, when we get to it, it'll make a lot more sense. Um, it's a very silly uh, kind of screwball film from the 60s. It's going to be a lot of fun. But before we get to that, uh, we're going to go into our individual picks. Who was assigned what? How was the film? Would we recommend it? What are our takeaways? So who wants to go first? I'll go first. Alrighty. Who assigned you what? And give us a little bit of details as to what this film is. Well, first of all, I have to issue a massive content warning. And that is that this film discusses school shootings quite extensively. And so if you don't wish to hear about that, just skip ahead a few minutes and we will be on to the next movie. But just so you know, that's coming up. I was assigned the Palm Door winning film, Elephant by Gus Van Sant, which came out in 2003, so not long after the Columbine shootings. It's semi-based on that incident, but also it's its own thing. And yeah, this was a very interesting film. It uses sort of um, multiple timelines of the same story. It's not sensationalized. It's not overly gory. It really gives a window. It spends a long time building up its characters, and so you really get to know this high school community, and if you went to a North American high school, it probably resonates with you a bit. And then you see this tragedy unfold in a very matter-of-fact manner, and it's always hard to know how to depict such tragic events on film, but I would say Gus Van Sant came very close to the way you do it, just matter-of-fact and with some sensitivity and with respect for the characters involved. But yeah, I think it was a tremendous piece, and I can see why it won the Palme d'Or, because it really was quite innovative in it in its storytelling methods. Yeah, this one's a little bit of a doozy, but I feel like uh, a really strong recommendation uh, for those who could stomach it. It's, um, I know, no shame if you can't. It's uh, challenging, to say the least, and the way that the film is shot, Gus Van Sant doesn't use any flourishes to try and romanticize or dilly-dally around the subject in any sort of way. 
Yeah. So, James, I'm curious, why did you assign this? So I assigned it because I think it's something that I think anybody who's very serious about film should watch, mainly because it's a it does a very good job at taking something serious and painting it in a light that isn't it's not like a propaganda piece. It's not like something to like pull at the heartstrings. It's just kind of like it's just to kind of give you a sense of like these two individuals about to do something horrific. What's going on in their minds? What's going on leading up to it? And just how, it, like you were saying, how it builds up these characters. It kind of, I don't know. It's really strange because on paper, this f- film doesn't seem like it would work out because, especially because it was so like so close to Columbine. But I don't know. I think he he treated it in a way that I think if anybody else would have done it, it would have it just would have fallen apart. Like it wouldn't have hit its mark because it kind of fades in and fades out. There's no, it's not necessarily like a traditional narrative style film. He just, like you said, it just, it kind of has these different timelines and and it's, it also introduces a format that he would use in multiple films later, which don't always pan out. But yeah, I, I think it's just, it's very breathtaking to take something that's such a tragedy, but I don't know. It's kind of, it treats the subjects with more humanity than normal filmmakers would treat it because I don't get the sense that these kids who, you know, do this are villains necessarily. Yeah. They go very deep into their story as well. Yeah. And it's like just their, the relationship with each other and kind of how they relate to the other students. But yeah, also it's, you know, it's actually celebrating its 20th year this year. So that's one of the reasons I picked it, but also it was one of the films that was, it won the Palme d'Or on a unanimous vote. Which is rare. Yeah, and that doesn't happen often, but yeah, this was also, I think he did this in collaboration with HBO, which is even more surprising. One thing I like is that it doesn't really go too deep into trying to explain why the event happened. It just depicts the event. And I think the first question you ask is always why, and I just thought it was a good choice that he tried to stay away from that, because ultimately why is a very big question to tackle. Oh yeah, and it's like, in in this context, it's not important. And it doesn't do anything to move the story forward. It just shows like, hey, this is the situation. Kind of take from it what you will, because, yeah, he doesn't really play sides in this. It just shows it it, kind of just ebbs and flows in a way that just kind of you're almost like a fly on the wall. It's almost like you're there and kind of seeing. And it's actually the way he builds the characters. It's like you actually you see very little of these characters, but it's like the, the minute they come on the screen, you start to care about them. Because it flashes forward and backward in a way, you know, what's going to happen, but you know, it's just when it's going to happen. It's an interesting approach because, um, when the film came out, obviously the major school shooting that everybody knew was Columbine. And, you know, there were very specific faces that attributed to it. Unfortunately, uh, 20 years later, cause you brought up how long ago this film was made. Um, such a topic is still exceptionally relevant and it's no no longer about particular people who partake in these events. It's more the fact that it's just an ongoing thing. And it's almost like a tabula rasa. Like it's just, this happening so often that it's not like these specific people. It's just the subject matter and the topic itself that needs to be discussed. So I feel like in that sense, it's unfortunately aged quite decently in the worst way possible. Exactly. Um, And also I would say that, You know, Gus Van Sant is no stranger to playing with form. Um, He's never terribly conventional, not very often anyway. 
But I think this is his filmmaker's film because it really is making the most of the medium in a way that his films really haven't. He takes it a level further with this one. Yeah, I think it's also partially um, there's certain sequences based on another film that's actually called Elephant. I don't remember if it was a feature or a short, but. Oh, you mentioned this last time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So this uh, the other film Elephant that he took inspiration from, there's a sequence where it follows a character through a building. And if you notice, like throughout Elephant, it's constantly following characters like behind them over their shoulder. And then he just kind of used that for the whole thing. And it's like, I thought that was interesting. It's like, you know, just constantly following all these characters into whatever their fates may be. I also like the ending because it's like, you know, as sad as the ending is, it's also kind of like, it's almost kind of like, I don't want to say it's like metaphorical, but it's like, it's, it's like, it's open-ended almost like the conversation of school shootings is constantly open-ended because it's like, it's still a problem, but what's the real solution? Yeah. And it's just such a complicated topic. Yeah. Um, So it's one of those films where, I feel like a lot of people might be apprehensive to watch it, given the subject matter. And I mean, I don't blame you for that. But if you're wary about how they treat the subject matter, I feel like it's with as much dignity as you can have, if you could say that. So um, if you're interested in the subject matter, but you don't really care for films that try to find solutions where there maybe aren't any, or they dumb down the content for the audience or treat us with a lack of seriousness. You're not going to find that an elephant. I feel like um, outside of the fact that I don't, you know, like I would like that this wouldn't be important, but one of the reasons I feel like why there aren't too many films about this anymore outside of Polytechnique by Denis Villeneuve, which is actually based on a real event um, is because elephant kind of told this sort of story as well as possible. And I don't think anybody else wants to touch it with a 10 foot pole. So if that's it for uh, elephant, um, James, what did you get in comparison? So I got a film that is completely different and unrelated to anything surrounding elephant. <laughs> so after uh, torturing me with many really long films that Oops. I probably will not rewatch for a very long time. Uh, you gave me Jonathan Glazer's 2014 film Under the Skin. Yeah, so I gave you this film because I think it is an indie masterpiece, and it's a sci-fi film which already is one of the best of the 21st century, and I feel like um, additionally its uh, reputation is only going to uh, grow stronger with time and also it's shorter than what i've been giving you for the past little while so i felt like that that was um that was at least nice if the film itself wasn't already it's a little bit of a challenging film for the average viewer so i felt like at least the length is a little bit more forgiving so um what is this film about I mean, essentially, it's uh, Scarlett Johansson plays an extraterrestrial who takes the form of a woman, and it just kind of goes through her just kind of experiencing life as a human while simultaneously, like, seducing and luring their men to their doom or luring men to their doom, which is and, and the way it happens is really interesting. There's a lot of stuff in here that this is a film you don't want to overthink because it kind of runs on a specific vibe. And I think like the main point is how she kind of navigates the human experience. Uh, I thought it was really well shot. Uh, There isn't much dialogue, which I think was smart for this because I think you can, it's easy to bog down sci-fi films with dialogue. So I thought it was more, the images are probably what's most important. Uh, 
But I will say, I think it's a claim, like you said, will grow. And I think it's a slow burn kind of. And I think I know why, because the timing of it is kind of... When it was released here, the best way to explain it, this dropped because it, it was, I think it showed at a festival in 2013, but then released in 2014, correct? Yes. Uh, it was released in theaters the year afterwards. Yeah. So I noticed two specific films that came before and after that I think hit so hard that I think that's why Under the Skin is kind of a slow burn because 2013 saw the release of Upstream Color and that was just like a critical supernova. And then 2015 saw the release of Alex Garland's Ex Machina, which we all know how that fared. So for this kind of be sandwiched in the middle. And then he went on to do uh, another film that we did for the smorgasbord uh, recommended by yours truly. Whoops. Uh, Annihilation, which is also like a, a sci-fi slow burn, but a lot of sci-fi films in general, are slow burns because I feel like they beg the viewer to take into account what's happening, what they're looking at, how to dissect what they're looking at and sci-fi films in general, a little bit calculated and uh, meticulous. Um, so, I mean, they just go hand in hand. So with under the skin, you don't just have like the slow burn of a film. You also have what's already being championed as one of the greatest scores of all time by Mika Levy. Um, just like a, a 21st century take on what the, the theme from cycle would sound like with these eerie, these eerie strings and pulsating heartbeat rhythms, if you can even call them that, uh, this brooding score, which just makes an already terrifying film all the more eerie. Yeah. I thought that, I thought the music was really interesting for this film. Uh, it definitely helped drive each scenario. Like the, just, especially like all the experimental sounds and just different melodies it tried and just the different synthesis. I thought it fit the film well, especially kind of with the concept Overall, I think, yeah, I think this is, I like when sci-fi takes this approach because like sci-fi movies can get very generic, but just, I think just, I think the 2010s in general just had a lot. Like I had mentioned Upstream Color Next Machina, but we also had Arrival by Denis Villeneuve, which is also a really interesting sci-fi film. I don't know. It's, it's, I think just sci-fi is like probably the coolest it's ever been in like the kind of the modern era, like we have a lot of classic stuff, but it's like stuff that people it's, you can still make something interesting in sci-fi like the, the, you know, it's kind of limitless if your imagination is deep enough. Yeah. And it's always uh, got something to say, because if it's, you know, if it's post-apocalyptic or looking forward, it's commenting on the now, or if it's uh, a sci-fi that maybe takes place back in time, which is rare, but it happens. Um, you know, you've got something talking about like the foundations of society. So there's always uh, something to say. And in this instance, there's um, a lot of discussion around the male gaze, particularly. And one of the fascinating things about this film is that a lot of it was shot kind of incognito, um, you know, in public with uh, people not knowing that there was necessarily a film set. Um, whether people recognize Scarlett Johansson as herself or not, uh, she kind of had to endure quite a bit when it came to objectification or just, you know, typical public harassment that women face. So that's like a very big theme here with um, how, you know, it's the 21st century and women are still being um, mistreated or misrepresented. And one thing I have to give Jonathan Glazer kudos for is for being a man who was able to subvert the male gaze, which sounds silly, but it's next to impossible. Even a lot of people that try 
they just don't get it. And in this particular instance, he took a bold move and actually accomplished it, which I don't think is uh, feasible for a lot of male directors, try as they might. Yeah, I can agree with that. Rachel, have you seen this film? I don't remember. I have not yet, but I will. Oh, it's uh, it's an interesting one. Uh, so yeah, if you want to see um, ScarJo uh, as an alien who harvests human skin, uh, go see Under the Skin. It's a tremendous film. So um, meanwhile, Rachel, I think it was, uh, I don't know what led you to recommending me this film, but uh, I actually finally got, got around to watching Shrek. <laughs> okay, it's not actually Shrek. Uh, no, I I saw Shrek like everybody else when it first came out on VHS. Uh, I was still a kid, changed my life, grew, got out of it quickly. W- no, it wasn't actually Shrek. What was this, uh, Rachel? Please tell. <laughs> well, I thought that you were getting a little too comfortable in your film viewership, and I wanted to torment you a little, so I assigned you Shrek Retold. And this is a YouTube project where they got a whole bunch of creators from all over the internet and consequently all over the world to each do like a couple of minutes, maybe even a few seconds of Shrek in their own style. So it could be live actors, it could be animation, it could be just about anything. And the result is it has to be seen to be believed. And you can see it on YouTube right now. Like right now. Okay, maybe maybe finish the episode first because, we, we, you know, we love your listenership. But uh, right afterwards, go go watch this thing. No, pause it. Go watch it and come back. <laughs> <laughs> okay, or that. So um, basically, if you've seen Shrek, this is Shrek. But it is told, like you said, by a series of animators and the occasional live action appearance, which if you want to know what that looks like... Uh, check this thing out you're looking at some really weird costume and makeup work but i digress so if you don't know the story of shrek and have somehow been living under a rock uh, shrek is an ogre unloved by society in a fairytale land um you know the story of shrek but the idea here is that shrek as a story is one thing but shrek as an idea is just it, it's it's taken on a whole new thing uh, 20 years later. It's the internet's favorite movie. It is. Uh, that or the B movie, which I'm sure is next uh, in, in this uh, Project Q of sorts. But um, actually Shrek 2 is, and I've heard that that's actually a thing. They're, they're actually working on it. Um, or they already have done it. I'm not caught up yet. But uh, back to this. Um, in meme culture, yeah, DreamWorks somehow just managed to get something going i don't know what it is but uh as as a meme farm shrek is just this seemingly unparalleled thing one of the biggest generators of meme culture um from bastardizing uh the smash mouth song which had some dignity until the movie came out and now it's got none or tons depending on who you ask to uh, a lot of the quotes from the film, this was the perfect opportunity for just randos online who grew up with Newgrounds flash animations and the like to go hog wild. Yeah, and like I wish you could have been a fly on the wall to see me and my partner watching this for the first time because we randomly discovered it on YouTube because our eyes just got bigger and bigger and bigger and we were like, what are we watching? It's truly all over the place. <laughs> yeah, you get like stuff from 
budding Flash animators before the medium came to a grinding halt a couple of years ago to a couple of well-known internet personalities like Anthony Fantano from The Needle Drop appears as the donkey in one of the sketches, which just blew my mind. I wasn't expecting that. Like, uh, you get everything from... um, traditional flash animation to ventriloquism to an oddly enough very touching recreation of princess fiona when she's revealed to be an ogre later on in the film um done in live action and or done via live action and with the actress donning green you'd think it would be really stupid but in a film that's full of chaos it's actually kind of enduring and beautifully done I really felt the love in this movie, the love for Shrek and the lover community. And it was really, really lovely. Yeah, that's the other thing. Whether people legitimately love the film or they don't care about the film, but they're in on the culture surrounding it. Nothing here was ever done in maybe a couple of the skits were done in poor taste, I would say. But in general, uh, this was more or less a community effort um by like what 200 odd artists i think and some of the moments last two minutes some of them last like honestly like three seconds it's pretty wild uh did you see it james so yeah i did see the movie and this was just an absolute fever dream every sequence like because there were shots that were just like there would be a sequence that would be like five seconds and then you go in like a couple minutes and just all these things cut together and all the unique styles of animation and I think there needs to be more of this. And actually, Shrek Retold 2 is premiering next month. Oh, it's next month? Ah, okay. I knew it was sometime soon. Well, I'm marking my calendar. Cool, because the people that make it, they do like, what, Shrek Fest, I think it's called? Okay. Oh. And uh, I think it's like the 10th anniversary, so they're debuting it there. So yeah, we'll get to see uh, Shrek Retold 2. Well, I will be there with bells on. I'm so excited, because the first Shrek Retold was wild. You... If you were a lover of film or if you've ever been into a fandom, you've got to see this. No question. Yeah, this almost reminded me of, if either of you have seen it, uh, Michelle Gondry's Be Kind Rewind, this idea of recreating something with as little means as possible, where you know it's going to be kind of junk, but it's the love behind it that makes these sorts of projects take off and just, you know, they, they carry on a different ethos of their own. So... I mean, I don't know what you could call this, but in essence, is this a film, especially for a podcast like this? I don't see why it isn't. Mm-hmm. This is cinema. <laughs> You're going the opposite direction. You're like, this is a masterpiece. <laughs> we need more films like this. I agree. And I think B-Movie should be the next one after the Shrek series. Uh, question, have you actually seen B-Movie? No, but I have seen when they remade Hamilton's My Shots during the cast of B-Movie, and that's really good. You should go find that on YouTube, too. I shall, and you could do me a solid and actually watch B-Movie, because it's, uh, it's it's wild, and once you're watching it, you're you're going to be like, they have to do a retold version of this, too. In fact, I think it's more... I feel like I've almost seen it just by being on the internet. <laughs> Eh, that's true. Like You basically know the gist of what happens, and it sounds ridiculous until you actually watch the film, and you're like... Yeah, that's precisely what happens. A lady falls in love with a bee and ditches her her loser boyfriend. And uh, the bee sues all of humanity for a tiny production. Yeah, that's a real thing. So, um, you know what else is pretty pretty hard to conceptualize until you actually watch it is our collective pick. So, 
we got a film called If It's Tuesday, It Must Be Belgium, which sounds like a mouthful. It sounds like such a weird title for a film. But once you watch this thing, it makes perfect sense. So uh, this was recommended to us by uh, Dear Rachel over here. What made you want to recommend this film for all, for us three? Well, honestly, it was because uh, we watched My Big Fat Greek Wedding not too long ago, my partner and I, and we were uh, and I was looking up Michael Constantine's work, and he plays a supporting role in the film. It's kind of an ensemble cast, and I saw that this was on the list. Um, and my mom always called these package tours, such as the one depicted in the film, if this if it's Tuesday, this must be Belgium tours, and she actually took one herself when she was about fifteen or sixteen. And so I was just really intrigued because I love travel. I have traveled quite a bit and I just wanted to see the differences and a window into this very specific moment in history with a lot of talented comedic actors along for the ride, of course. Yeah, I think it's safe to say that you are our um, our resident nomad who's basically been everywhere. And um, this film definitely mocks, but, you know, with love, the idea of like, tourist culture and and you know the uh the chaos of, of traveling and winding up in new places completely lost and and out of your element um yeah i thought it was uh certainly like an offshoot of the screwball genre um what is this film in a nutshell plot wise Basically, there are a bunch of storylines from, I think they were all American, except for the guide, a, a bunch of Americans traveling on these package tours, which were so ubiquitous in the late 60s, early 70s. And um, so this one group is going, they go to like London, um, France, Italy, um, Switzerland, several countries in about as many days. And, you know, one's there, Michael Constantine, because he remembers it from the war. Somebody else wants to find a nice pair of Italian shoes and buy beautiful shoes. One family's trying to get their daughter away from a boyfriend because they forgot there are boys in Europe, too. And it goes from there. And, you know, not much happens. But and I, when I first saw this movie, I thought, oh, this is so dumb. I'm probably not going to enjoy it. But the characters grow on you and their motivations grow on you. And this little group becomes a real community. And I don't know. I think it's just a movie that you really ease into in a very nice way. Yeah, um, you're right, though. It feels like not much happens, but at the same time, quite a lot happens. I would say uh, not in any disparaging sort of way. Not much of substance happens, but it's more like, you know, the personal adventures that these characters go on for their own for their own reasons, but also like the little trinkets that you see on screen as well. I, I almost felt like this was like a very, 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 very light version of uh, Jacques Tati's playtime where there's like a little bit of like chaos going, like this isn't even close to what that is, but this is like maybe playtime for the average film viewer that wants something a little bit more bite-sized, but if they want more of this and the eccentricities and the little things that happen where you blink and you miss it, uh, playtime is like the magnum opus. It's like the Ulysses of this sort of thing. I think it's very realistic about how travel changes you because if you do a long trip like that or a really big trip that, um, that is significant somewhere you've always wanted to go maybe, or like the Michael Constantine character, that's part of your past it really does put you in a different place when you come back. And I think they do a very nice job of being subtle about that. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, what about you, James? What were your initial thoughts uh, hopping into this thing? I actually thought this was a fun film. It's just kind of like the zany adventure of this group of tourists 
like there, there's just all these different archetypes and it's just i don't know it's just a lot of fun especially like the character who loses his wife halfway through the movie or you know the tour guide who's making a pass at this woman who's kind of seeing somebody and who wants to get married and she's unsure and just kind of all the fun stuff they do it's i don't know if i were to go on a trip like that i'd want to be with people like that because it just seems like a riot yeah, it does look like fun. Um, those tours still exist. They're just not as popular as they used to be because I think now the emphasis is kind of forging your own way. It, yeah, I thought it was fun. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a fun film. I don't know if there's anything too endearing about it, but if you just want like a good old-fashioned 60s screwball comedy of sorts with a lot to look at, whether it's geographical sites or... Uh, funny little gags. One of my personal favorites is the, I forget who it is, but the uh, the one tourist who like packs a hotel phone in his suitcase after he's done getting off the phone. Um, you know that sort of thing. Uh, this is this is an, a nice breezy hour forty piece of escapism. Well, uh, on on that note, I think we are done with our selections but i feel like we are um kind of getting to the parts that we're more excited about typically uh where we find out what we're going to be watching for our next month uh the month of august which we are oddly enough like almost a third of the way through <laughs> uh, by the time this episode is released we will be a third of the way through so um nonetheless uh before we get into all of that good stuff uh rachel where can you find us we are on Facebook and Instagram under the K-Cut. We are going to stop using Twitter slash X for the moment until they get sorted out. But um, yeah, uh, we're on Facebook and Instagram right now. Fantastic. Um, okay, so it's uh, time for our monthly Christmas bonus, uh, finding out what we get to watch for for the next month. So who wants to go first with their their recommendation? What's mine? Okay, well, I have you this month, and so I thought you might just enjoy a big old epic from back in the day, and it's definitely the kind of film that every film fan should see. And that is The Bridge on the River Kwai by David Lean, uh, starring Alec Guinness, and I hope you enjoy it. Ooh, alrighty. You've been recommending me some, like, awesome classic cinema, so I'm, I'm always excited for anything you recommend. Well, I hope you have fun with this one. Alrighty, what am I going to watch? So I've been waiting to assign this for a while. No particular reason, I just... It just sort of ended up at this point of the year, but I am actually going to give you a documentary, and that documentary is Tupac Resurrection. Okay. Which is a documentary that's kind of, it's put together of a lot of archive stuff, and it makes it so it's kind of like he's telling his own story, and it's actually directed by Lauren Lazen, who did The Last Days of Left Eye. Oh, which... And I know you like that film, so that's why I'm recommending this one. Yes, I thought it sounded uh, familiar. Yes, I... um completely unexpected i'm sure uh i'm a very big fan of left eye and that documentary i thought was extremely well done so um an even bigger figure in the uh the ethos of hip-hop culture uh tupac resurrected i'd love to see what this director does with that that's definitely unique okay sounds good to me so i'm recommending something to you rachel right yes all righty so i'm hoping you haven't seen this um there's a chance you may have but i know you're super into um period pieces let's say and i'm not entirely sure if you've seen what is perhaps my favorite traditional period piece film of all time um are you interested in watching barry linden by stanley kubrick i would love to and i've not gotten around to it yet so that's actually a really good pick barry linden is sensational it's uh, arguably the best looking film ever made 
Um, if you pause the film at any second, it looks like a painting. Uh, it's just gorgeous to look at. It's um, one of Kubrick's most emotional films because a lot of people love to call him a frigid filmmaker. And I would beg to differ when it comes to releases like this. And uh, yeah, Barry Lyndon is, I think, one of my all-time favorite films. It might actually be my favorite Kubrick film. So I'm very excited to share that with you. Well, I'm really looking forward to it. And I've heard so many stories about Barry Lyndon, so I can't wait to see how it all shakes out when I see it. Amazing. Well, uh, for our collective picks, so, you know, I, I'm trying to really find something that all of us might dig, and I'm hoping I'm not too accurate because I hope that uh, I didn't pick something that we've already seen. I know I haven't. So... I'm trying to think of like the indie filmmaking aspect that James likes the um, I guess like Rachel, there's like a very specific sort of like style of filmmaking that I feel like you might be into something that I would be as well. Um, I feel like we can all agree on Sofia Coppola. Have we have either of us seen somewhere? No, I have not. Fantastic. Well, the bad news is I have. No, I'm kidding. Uh, that would have been really stupid. Uh, no, so that is going to be our collective pick. We're going to be watching Somewhere by Sofia Coppola. Uh, a lot of people don't bring up this film in the general sense, but those who have seen it typically find that it might be one of the better films in her filmography, which is saying a lot because she's quite skilled. And guess what? It's under 100 minutes, so it's another easy breezy one at least. So... Um, there you have it, dear listeners, uh, for the month of August, uh, not too much time left, but, uh, I'm sure we'll all make it work. We have Barry Lyndon, Tupac Resurrected, uh, the bridge over the river Kwai and somewhere like we always say, you can't get any more varied than this, but, um, you've got a couple of three hour Titanic epics. And you also have a couple of shorter films, which will, uh, you know, this will all, this will do the trick. So we're looking forward to that. That was the K-Cut. Thank you so much for listening. We are now going into the all-cut. <laughs>